0: Welcome to Forgotten Cello Music. This is episode 53. This is part three of a four-part series in Counterpoint, and I'm getting my inspiration from a cello method from a 19th century Italian cellist named Guglielmo Quarenghi. This week's Counterpoint installment is about canon. Quarenghi wrote an entire canon pages, and we'll explore what a canon is, and a couple of examples from an old dictionary. First off, canon, the strictest form of musical imitation, in which two or more parts take up in succession exactly the same subject. In this case, we have a cello duet, as with all of these musical examples that Quarenghi wrote himself in this method. They are all cello duets. Previously in this four-part series on Counterpoint, I dealt with introducing Quarenghi as a person, which there is a little bit about, and the five species of Counterpoint, which he exemplified himself in his own musical composition. Very simple, but it's composition. And then imitation, now today is canon and what remains is a very large fugue. Now after Counterpoint I'm going to stay in Quarengi's world and play a capriccio, one of, I think, six that are now available on IMSLP anyway, for cello and piano. And this capriccio is quite something. I'm I'm practicing it and uh The lack of performance and and just playing in general has really put it uh, up on a challenging pedestal for me. But I'm doing my best and it's fun and this channel is all about forgotten cello music. This podcast deals with music written for cello that has been long forgotten. Thank you very much to those that have been watching listening and uh commenting it would be great to hear from more send your comments uh what do you think about canon also i was going to ask what you think in general about the direction of this podcast or the the project forgotten cello music i was looking back and listening and thinking about the early episodes I kept it very strictly to dealing with the people, the cellists, the cellist composers and their music. And so the episodes were generally a little bit shorter, uh, more to the point. And I've noticed that I've broadened my exploration. Maybe I am broadening a little too much, like in this series, for example. It's very interesting and I'm quite obsessed with it. But it is getting a little far afield of what the purpose of this project was the beginning, which is forgotten cello music. Yeah, I'm playing forgotten cello music, (laughs) but I'm dealing with a lot of musical theory in the process, which of course is very interesting. (laughs) At any rate, you can say that counterpoint is rather forgotten. It's not thought of very often anyway, unless we're playing Bach, for example. While I'm in this series, I'm going to go full bore, and I'm not going to give it up. What do you think? Now on to canon. Let's dig a little deeper into canon. Since canon is the strictest form of counterpoint, as you heard in the introduction, it is therefore written strictly according to the rule. The principle of a canon is that one voice begins a melody which melody is imitated precisely, note for note and generally interval for interval. And that is by some other voice, of course, and in this all of the cases that I'm going to uh, let you listen to they are duets. Now they can be at the same pitch, they can be at an octave, They can be at a different pitch. They can begin a few beats after the first statement, or they can begin a long time after that. Four measures, eight measures, or the like. So taking part in the lead is the antecedent, and the following part is the consequent. We've heard those terms before in imitation. The following that I'm going to let you listen to in just a minute, this is an example of a canon two in one, as it's said, at the octave. That is for two voices an octave apart. And in this case, the antecedent plays for two measures before the consequent comes in on the third measure. Let's take a listen to that now. have heard that this sounds like a computer-generated cello if it sounds like a cello at all yes that's true I did it for one main reason and that is because I wanted it to be absolutely clear that uh, of the voicing so it's easier to hear them because oftentimes when I'm playing I don't get the levels right in the uh, fiddling with the this uh, recording equipment just has me befuddled most of the time, and I'm not sure why or how I get things right, and then why or how things go awry. So, in this case, you can hear the antecedent comes in for two measures, and then the consequent comes in an octave lower than that. And they are playing exactly the same melody for—let's see, the consequent plays the exact same melody for six bars. And then something remarkable happens. It draws to a close which necessarily means that you have to change something about the subject. In fact, it is no longer the subject, it's no longer the canon. It's called a coda or the tailpiece or a tail. And that just means that it's bringing things to a close. We're, we're at the conclusion. Otherwise, uh, how would you end the canon? It would have to go on forever, I guess. Which brings us to the next section. We could have a repeat, which means that, uh, because of the way the subject is composed, there's no real good place to end it. Because of that, you get what is called a circular or infinite canon. So the following example comes from the Groves Dictionary as well, from uh, circa 1900. And in this case, the antecedent still enters on cello one. Uh, but the consequent comes in only a measure later and at a fifth below rather than an octave below. there was an introduction I guess you could put it that way of one measure and then this is where the repeat is measure two through measure nine so there are eight measures that are repeated there are nine measures total but the first measure is not repeated only the second through the ninth measures are repeated and this can be ad nauseum as it were so we have essentially a forever loop. <laughs> My friends, this is the original loop right here. It's not anything digital. It's not anything computer related. It is canon related. This is the loop. Just as a point of interest, uh, I'm not going to play an example, but we have what's called enigmatic cannons. So these enigmatic cannons, they are really games of wit. These are composers um doing their utmost to stretch their powers of of thought of compositional prowess but they're not written out in conventional ways and that's why they're enigmatic you have to you have to figure it out it's a it's a riddle it's a puzzle it's a brain twister teaser however you say that and they indicated how to solve the puzzle, the canon puzzle, by monograms and symbols, other devices. They would write out directions in a kind of, uh, in in Latin, but in a way that wasn't immediately clear as to what you should do. And oftentimes they would write these canons in shapes, like as in the shape or the form of a cross, or the shape of a hand, or what have you and so they're they're really in a way ingenious puzzles. On to the forgotten cello music, Quarenghi's Canon. This is a two-page canon and it's pretty clever. Uh, It sounds like it was written a hundred years before his time. He really was able to figure out the the historical style here Anyway, what about Quarenghi's own canon? This is, of course, in Part 3, Section 2 of his massive cello method of about 600 pages. Here, let me play you what the subject sounds like. Okay, and obviously, that was the antecedent, and consequent comes in with exactly the same notes, but in this case, an octave below. This is a piece in cut time, and this is important. The meter is important because of what comes at the end. Now, keep that in mind. We'll talk about the ending a little bit later. First, let's talk about all of the entries of the subject matter, where the antecedent comes in and then how the consequent follows. So, for example, The first two measures of the subject are half note B flat, half note C natural, a dotted half note D, and then eighth note C, eighth note B flat going down. And this happens throughout the canon, of course, that's the subject matter. The first time it enters, we've already mentioned that the upper voice, cello one, takes the antecedent for four measures before the consequent enters in measure 5, an octave below. And here is the full example complete with the antecedent continuing on as the consequent also is playing. jump ahead about halfway through the piece to measure 35 before we get another subject. And the antecedent is still in cello 1, the upper voice, Uh, but we have truncated the amount of time between the entries. So here the antecedent plays for only two measures before the consequent comes in, and here it is. is not that much farther down the composition. We've got measure 43. He switches, the antecedent is now in the lower voice, and the consequent is an octave above in the upper voice. But we only have one measure. We hear only a quarter of the subject before the consequent comes in. Two half notes to be exact, and here it is. Uh For the ending, we have another entry. The antecedent is still in cello 2, the lower voice, and consequent comes in an octave above in cello 1, the upper voice. But we have exactly one sixteenth of the subject we hear before the consequent comes in. That means we have only one quarter note that we can hear. <laughs> Now before we talk about the ending, is this not just a really interesting way of composing? It's it's really stunning that it works out to sound so good. He has not altered the pitch. It's always at the octave. So we had four measures of this subject before the consequent comes in for the first time. And then he cut it in half. We have exactly half of that subject before the consequent comes in. And now, the third time, we have only a quarter of the subject before the consequent comes in. And the fourth time, only 1 16th of the subject is heard before the consequent comes in. Now to the end. Remember the meter I mentioned? Cut time. Okay, we'll put it in, in number terms. We count it in two, right? So if you want to count each beat, generally we call this subdivision. We say one and two and rather than one, two, three, four. At the end, we get something called a coda, which you heard before uh, in the example from the Groves dictionary, the very first example I played. There there was an ending, a tailpiece, the conclusion, and this is what we have here. He changes the meter to common time or what many people nowadays write as 4-4 four, four time and essentially you count it in four or you feel it in four rather than in two so instead of instead of counting one and two and we're counting one two three four now he does something interesting and i'm going to say here that based on my experience and what i know about history i think we can say that he meant it to be slower probably at half the speed or half the tempo. So I'm going to say, and this is the way I'm going to play it in the example, the full composition here in a few minutes, I'm going to count it in four. Originally we had half note, half note, dotted half note, but now here when the antecedent comes in we have quarter note, quarter note, dotted quarter note, which if we count it the way that I said we were going to do it, basically at half tempo, we get the same sound, the same duration, and I'll show it to you right now. It doesn't sound any different, even though it's marked, notated in quarter notes. When the consequent comes in, he labels it as augmentation in contrary motion. Now, augmentation means that you're generally speaking playing the subject twice as long. And here we've got it not only twice as long, so you're counting it bum, 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 but he's got it in contrary motion, so it's not going up, it's descending. It's going bum, 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 And it sounds like this. Pretty stunning stuff. It sounds really fantastic. But we're not done yet. Quaringi, he gives us one more example of Canon. And this is the consequent g- returns to the lower voice. The antecedent, the first statement, returns to the upper voice. Now, it is the original statement, so we're going bum, 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 like this. But now, instead of just contrary motion, he does it at a fourth. <laughs> okay, anybody that was listening, very carefully to the, the the previous previous example already figured out that it was at the third so he started on D rather than a B flat Now here he starts at a fourth lower so he starts on a an F natural rather than a B flat so it's a it's exactly a perfect fourth under B flat and that's what this sounds like. Did you hear it? It was shorter. The duration of the contrary motion going downward, that is, was shorter than anything we'd heard. This is called diminished. So the duration of the subject is actually shorter. Instead of bum, 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 it goes bum, 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 or in this case, bum, 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 down, right? This is why I'm obsessed with it right now. Okay, I'm not so obsessed that I I figure every detail out, but it is not my point to figure every detail out because I would just, I would get too confused. Go one level at a time. This is like the elementary level of figuring out counterpoint and canon. Ah, very cool. So before I play the entire Canon by Quarenghi. Let's do a little review. Uh, We've got exactly six statements throughout the entire piece, including the coda, and that's where he changes the meter to common time. And each time he gives us the statement, (laughs) he shortens the time in between the antecedent and the consequent. And then in the coda, he gives us some special effects where we have contrary motion, and augmentation, and finally diminution, or a diminished effect. Here it is, Quaringi's Canon for Cello Duet. Well, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, the canon was very fun to work on. Uh, I especially liked marking up the score. Um, I'm going to post a picture of it in my blog. So if you would like, you can click on the link there and go to my blog or read a little bit. Um, you know, peruse what I've said here. I'm going to put it in writing form written form, and a picture of the markup. And i would be interesting to know how you mark up uh, a canon or a counterpoint to show entries and uh, variations and such. You know, when I introduced the canon, I spoke and played the specific instances where you can hear the subject. And as I said, it, it really was just to bring awareness to the the elementary points the basic points of the form so the subject always enters the same both for the antecedent and the consequent you can hear that throughout unless you do contrary motion right that's that's where you can do some um some changes that's where you can do some variants but otherwise the rules remain the same whether you're doing contrary motion whether you're doing retrograde, whether you're doing entry at the fourth or the third, it's still the same rules. You cannot deviate from the rules. That is, the antecedent is played and the consequent must follow note for note, beat for beat. Rhythm has to be the same. And that's why we have a canon. As a final word, I felt it was necessary kind of weird way to say it, but almost necessarily I was obsessed with doing this because I didn't get this kind of training. Yes, yes, yes. I, my teachers were very nice. I, I liked the way they did things. Uh, I'm just complaining a very little bit, and that is in relationship to playing Bach. <laughs> because as a string player, you know Bach is like at the very pinnacle of of uh, of your lesson time. It is viewed as the very summit of, of playing. So it, it bewilders me that we didn't spend much of any time really talking about counterpoint and what it stood for, what it really was, how it played a role in Bach's music. So for me, I think that studying counterpoint is necessary at least this much, at a, at a very fundamental level, to understand uh, antecedent-consequent uh, the entries and how you can uh, come in at varying durations or, or the placements. To, to really understand Bach and play him in an informed way, to play him uh, in the way that he was understanding composition. Because we look at composition quite differently, starting, well, starting with Bach. I mean, his time period, he was kind of an old fogey in a way. Because he was integrating um, this old style. <laughs> they would have called it obsolete. If you want to learn the details, more power to you, go do it. It would be less intimidating to play music by Bach. Finally, the next episode, please come back and listen to the fugue by Korengi This conclude this will conclude the the series four part series on counterpoint from Corengi's section of counterpoint in his cello method, so you know that this is something that is fundamentally important to know. Come back and listen to it. I'd be really interested. I genuinely am interested to know your thoughts. Uh, you know, if you think it's totally unimportant, irrelevant to your life as a performing musician, fine. I'd like to know that, too. But otherwise, let me know what you think about counterpoint and, and how you learned it, how you studied it. Corenghi has been a complete eye-opener. I hope that you will listen to all the episodes uh, and get to know his contribution. You will also hear con- uh, Capriccio at the end of this five-part Corenghi series. Whatever you do, I hope you will play more forgotten cello music.